for me, only because the the story is so great, right? When you when you're thinking about this being like the inaugural championship team of the league and what they did um, coming out the gate and how I feel like they're I mean their championships to me hold more weight because it's historically a, a bit more significant because yes. this is like shaping the new women's league, right. you know, and it, it's kind of hard to say like what that impact is today, or at least hard to quantify it. Yeah. But, you know, I think um, the Celtics could have never won those six or seven titles in a row and a league would still be where it's at today. I believe that. I don't think I can say the same for the WNBA if the comments hadn't won those four titles back to back so that's why for me it holds a bit more weight um and then also like how they when it comes to sports there have only been five pro teams to win four consecutive championships the boston celtics the new york islanders the new york yankees the montreal canadians and the 1997 and 2000 houston comets the Comets were the WNBA's inaugural championship team, who over the course of four seasons went 98-24 and 24 and only lost two playoff games. Houston set a tone and did so while forming the original Big Three, with Cynthia Cooper, a 34-year-old rookie and two-time MVP, Cheryl Swoops, a three-time MVP and a first woman to earn a major shoe sponsorship deal, and Tina Thompson, a four-time All-Star. The 97 and 2000 Comets were the first women's pro team to visit the White House Rose Garden and 3P or 4P. But despite what all the Comets gave to basketball and the WNBA, eight years after the team's final championship in 2000, it was dissolved. A team that basically helped lay the foundation of the WNBA was unable to see the league's 25th anniversary in 2021. The Glass House looked a former New York Liberty and Houston Comets player, Cokies Washington, and Jasmine Watkins, community manager at Buzzer, to help give an oral history of the Houston Comets' historic championship run and highlight the team's impact on the game and league today. This is the oral history of the Houston Comets. Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Roberts, and this is the story of the WNBA's inaugural season. The latest chapter in the history of women's sports, the debut of the WNBA. The Houston Comets are going to the WNBA championship game. We're used to seeing super teams become the result of high-profile trades, lottery picks, or the blossoming of an under-the-radar player, or a jolt of luck. But leading up to the inaugural 1997 season, the WNBA wanted parity. So the first 16 players were assigned by the league, two players per eight teams. And with the range of factors that went into those decisions, including regional ties, for example, Lisa Leslie, who was from L.A. and attended USC, made sense to be assigned to the L.A. Sparks. Rebecca Lobo had gone to UConn and is from the Northeast, so the closest team was the New York Liberty. And Cheryl Swoops is from Texas and attended Texas Tech making her a natural fit for Houston. And for anyone wondering how the Comets managed to get Cheryl Swoops, Cynthia Cooper, and Tina Thompson after claiming they wanted parity, well, they were kind of unaware of what they had. Cynthia Cooper, who played at USC, has spent the last decade in Spain and Italy dominating the competition, but doing so out of the view of WNBA decision makers. 
So even the first president of the WNBA, Val Ackerman, later admitted and is quoted saying, none of us realized how good Cynthia Cooper was, because if we had, she would not have been assigned to the comments. remember watching them play and I'm like, first of all, I'm like, how is this even allowed? Because they are so dominant. All three, you know, Coop could be out, here comes Swoops. Like, and Tina Thompson was just so solid, super consistent all the time. Hi everyone, I'm Val Ackerman, president of the WNBA. With the first pick in the 1997 WNBA draft, the Houston Comets select Tina Thompson. After the first 16 players were selected by the WNBA, the next 16 players were put in the elite draft. Houston picked up Brazilian star Janet Arcane. Then the college draft followed, and each team received one ping pong ball for the WNBA lottery to determine their draft position. The Comets, with a bit of luck, came away with the top pick and selected Tina Thompson out of Southern California. But even with the right to pick first in the draft, there was uncertainty around whether the team's projected top pick would even be available just days before the draft. Thompson had been planning to enroll in law school rather than pursue a basketball career. A natural researcher, Thompson felt that what she knew at the time, the success of a professional women's league in North America had not been very good. It was the involvement of David Stern and his commitment to making the WNBA a viable league that convinced Thompson to enter the draft. Yeah, it was um, it was kind of crazy because I was in law school, actually. I was in my third year of law school, and um, uh, we heard the rumblings about not only one, but two leagues starting. Um, so the ABL st- you know, started, and um, the WNBA was starting at the same time. And it was this big thing about like, which league is going to make it, you know, which league is going to be the real league. And the ABL had the benefit of having um, more of the players off of that 1996 Olympic team. Um, so I want to say nine out of those 12 players decided to play in the ABL because oh, wow. the ABL was playing in the traditional basketball season. Um, they were playing, they played a November to March schedule, I think. Um, and they were paying higher salaries. Um, and so there was um, a little bit more substance to the ABL, the perception, I should say, that, 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 that the ABL had more substance. And the WNBA was just more splash. You know, they only had three of those, not 12 players, Lisa Leslie, Rebecca Lobo, and Cheryl Swoops, you know, decided to play in the WNBA and they had the commercials and, you know, all, and they were, but they were playing in the summer and it was like, is it a real basketball league or, you know, is it just, you know, you know, a summertime gig? Like, so that was the perception and kind of the debate in the women's basketball circles was which of these leagues is for real. And, and, um, you know, which league is going to have the longevity. And I think it, you know, so the ABL actually launched ahead of the WNBA. They launched in the fall of, I don't know, 96. They played 96, 97, and then the WNBA played in that summer. And it was, it, you know, so interesting because once the WNBA actually started playing, it was like, oh, yeah, the WNBA is for real. Right. You know, they're playing on NBC. They're playing in front of, you know, they're playing in NBA arenas. Um, They are playing in front of, you know, 10, 15,000 fans. And there was just a seriousness. And 
a high level to the WNBA launch that um, was really, really cool. And, and I think up the ante um, in terms of public perception about women's professional basketball in this country. Avoiding competition with the NBA, the WNBA tipped off its inaugural season in June 1997 and ended in September. In its debut season, the Comets earned the Eastern Conference's best record, going 18-10. and 10. And following a playoff victory against the Charlotte Sting, the Houston Comets beat the New York Liberty in the final on August 30th, 1997, to become the WNBA champions of the inaugural year. The official tip-off of today's game, the first ever game for the women's NBA. The 1998 season saw the league expand with the addition of two more teams, and the Comets went on to secure the best record in the WNBA that season at 27-3, and and as of 2018, remained the best winning percentage of a professional basketball team in both the NBA and WNBA. Cynthia Cooper earned her second straight regular season Most Valuable Player Award, and Houston Comets head coach Van Chancellor was named WNBA Coach of the Year for the second time. To me, they're they're like untouchable. Like when it comes to the WNBA, they made the W what they are. Like I, I just don't see like I see other dynasties creating and forming, but what they did in that amount of time, it, it can't be touched. And I think it's mainly because of the time period. Like this is everybody's first like glance at women playing hoops in the U.S. So aside from like college hoops and I just, I don't, they had like a dream team, which is crazy because I remember I was probably like 10 or 11 thinking that this team would not work because they had two like ball dominant players in swoops and Cooper, but to put for both of them to put their egos aside, I, I, I got to respect it. I, I think they're number one as far as like the W is concerned. In 1998, the Comets would face the New York Liberty again in a championship game. You know, like Spike Lee would be at some of our games, you know, and Rosie O'Donnell sitting courtside and Whitney Houston came to a game. And so they were like stars at our game and, you know, and it's New York. So if you, if you trash, right, they're going to tell you, you trash. (laughs) Yes. So I was so, and we were on NBC and I was just like, oh my gosh. And, you know, I'm playing behind a legend, Teresa Weatherspoon. So I'm the backup point guard. So she's out there and she's running around and she's doing all this. And I'm like, God, I just don't want to, just don't turn the ball over. Just, you know, just pass it and get out of the way and don't, you know, I was just so nervous. But um, once I got out there, you know, it's just like basketball, you know, you forget everything. But, you know, it was, it was just amazing. And, And I think this is what was so cool about where the, the WNBA's roots were. You know, you walk out there and you're playing and you look up and you see the Willis Reed jersey and you see the championship banners and you go, man, this is this is for real. You know, and and, you know, you got the NBC trucks on the side. And I mean, it's it's Madison Square Garden. The Liberty will come up short in a championship game, losing 47 to 59 in a final game of the best of three series. But. That championship wasn't about establishing a dynasty. It was more than that for the Houston Comets. You know, I'll just keep it brief so we don't get emotional. But Kim, 
Parrott. I, I, I know. Cry, I mean, so. last Thursday, Kim Parrott lost her battle with cancer. The Comets have dedicated their season to Kim. I, I think for for me or for us, that was such a that that kind of I know it brought us closer, but it kind of changed. It, it changed how you really looked at the game and how you really appreciated um, just, you know, what, what you have, you know, how you just appreciated life. In early February, guard Kim Parrott was diagnosed with lung cancer. Despite her absence on the court, she quickly became the team's spiritual boost. And unfortunately, that August, Parrott lost her battle with cancer. At five foot five and 130 pounds, Parrot was small in stature, but she played with this larger-than-life personality. She was a spark and the teammate who raised the roof, literally. Cynthia Cooper, throughout her playing career, was affectionately called "raise the roof" because she would well raise the roof, but she got that from Kim. Cynthia became famous for it by way of being one of the faces of the team and the league, but that was all Kim. Like, it's a, it's a big three. Thompson swoops Cooper. But that team does not move without Kim Parag. Like, she, the way she saw the floor, she was so, and I hate to use this word, but she was so scrappy. Like, maybe not the best three-point shooter, but she was there when you needed her. Mid-range, up and under, like, she killed it. And she was able to see whoever was open. So the the bittersweet moment for me was seeing them win after she had passed. And to me, even now, it's so weird. It, it's it's emotional because I didn't realize it at the time. Like I didn't know the full scope of what was going on. But seeing Coop hold up that Parat jersey um, as she's standing on like the, the sideline table, I I, I just remember crying. Because I'm like, yeah, him should be here. And and yes, they had great moments all together. But when in, in that moment, when she when I thought she was such a big part of the, the championship runs, that that part will always stick out. We made our team from a mm. pool of players, yeah. it's like almost 200 players or something like that. They came to try out and she was picked from that group. Coach Chancellor didn't want her. And he didn't want her like we did. My coach is a lucky man to have me on his team. Go <laughs> <laughs> coach, hey, tell the truth. I think, I think, Perot, I'm a lucky man to be your coach. That's, that's right, that's, that's right. right. I, I, I'm a lucky man. Following the 1999 season, the Comets became the first ever WNBA team invited to the White House. And Nike unveiled a shoe known as the Nike Air C14 or Air Cooper, personally designed for Cynthia Cooper. And only four years earlier, Cheryl Swoops would become the first woman to obtain a Nike basketball shoe deal in 1995, ahead of the 1996 Olympics where she played for Team USA. And after an emotional season prior, the Comets went on to secure their fourth consecutive WNBA title in a series win over the New York Liberty. Now, another championship run by the Comets may have been a surprise to some, but definitely not for Coquise Washington. I get traded to the Comets, and I, I immediately, when I got traded to the Comets, I'll never forget this. I called my dad and said, Dad, I'm about to win a championship. And he was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I got traded to the Comets. Like, you know, I just went from the 15th floor to the penthouse. Like, I'm about to win one. I'm, You know, I was so excited. 
Not only did the Comets win their fourth title, but they were the first in league history to go undefeated, 6-0, throughout the entire WNBA playoffs, and won 11 of 12 playoff games at Compact Center in Houston of its four-year run. Cheryl Swoops and Cynthia Cooper scored 32 of the Comets' final 36 points during that game. Cooper, who had announced that she was retiring at the end of that postseason, forced overtime by hitting a three with 21 seconds remaining, tying the game at 64-64. Cheryl scored the final two points of the game, setting a career playoff high with 31 points, and Cooper grabbed the final rebound and held on as time expired. If there was any like franchise to be saved, you do what you can to save that one. Even if you have to do like a like a Sonics to Thunder situation, you make sure that the comments are a team, whether they're under another name, which isn't preferable, but it's better than them going away completely. After their fourth title, the annual parades that comments players and fans became accustomed to during that historic run from 97 to 2000 came to a halt. Following Cooper's retirement, and for the first time in a franchise's history, the Comets didn't make it out of the conference semifinals. 2006 would be the last time the team would make the playoffs before being dissolved. Comets owner Leslie Alexander announced that he was selling the team in October 2006, following a trend in the WNBA, as Houston would become the fifth team in the league to move from an NBA parent to an outside ownership. On January 31, 2007, the Comets were sold for $10 million to Houston furniture retailer Hilton Koch. By September 2008, the team would be put on sale six weeks before its final game and didn't even get to experience that final game in Houston. On December 1st, the Houston Comets operations were suspended. Dissolving in such an unceremonious way is only one of many disappointments around seeing the team go away. Cheryl Swoops, who is now in a Hall of Fame, doesn't have her jersey retired. You can walk into other arenas and see jerseys retired for players in that respective city, but for someone as impactful as Cheryl Swoops, the first woman's basketball player to have her own shoe isn't on display in the Raptors. And if they, you know, when Dwight was doing well, they likened him to Shaq, and there's always some kind of throwback, but there's nothing for the lead to kind of throw back to the comments for other than like them winning championships. But you don't want to bring that up because then you have to bring up how they went away. The NBA, you know, went to a model of individual ownership, you know, so it, it started as, you know, the league owned all the franchises. So they had a little bit more of a hand in, in how they were run financially. And then, but I think there was always the sense that, you know, we're going to eventually get to individual ownership. And individual owners have to, you know, do what they need to do in terms of support, financial support, resources, human and financial resources and, you know, marketing within their um, their their individual cities to make sure the, the, the franchise stays viable. Um, so I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure what what the league could have done. I wish that selfishly, I wish that. Um, they would have um, somehow we they, it could have been bought and maybe even moved to a different city or something um, and, and kept alive because I think um, it has such, you know, that team had such a rich history. And, and I think uh, the, 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 the start that the Houston Comets had 
to the league, gave the league um, a level of interest and intrigue because you started right out the gate with a dynasty. And every year, inevitably, the question was, who's going to knock off the Comets? You know, who's going to knock off Cheryl Swoops and Tina? And, you know, who's going to knock off the knock off the Comets became a question that gave the league something to stand on. The Comets Center League's impact remains, whether the franchise does or not, that can't ever be denied. We not only have the Comets to thank for that, but also the WNBA's Players Association. Cokies Washington served as the first president of the WNBPA and the league's voice that you hear today. The league's activism and service has a lineage dating back to that first season when Cokies and others helped to make sure the league saw 25 years and the players would enjoy the fruits of it from then and beyond. Because the way the public got behind the league and supported the league with the marketing dollars, that the NBA put behind it. Um, by the second season, a lot, a number of the agents of the players in the WNBA um, started to talk to the players about, y'all need to unionize. You know, you guys need to, you need to get together and you need to start making some demands of ownership because the first year uh, of the WNBA, the minimum salaries were $5,000. And there was no year-round health insurance. There were no retirement benefits. There was no maternity leave. There were, you know, the basic uh, things in terms of benefits that people assume you would get. Like none of that stuff was afforded to the players um, collectively. You know, maybe some of the marquee players might have had, you know, different deals. Um, and then the, I think the second year, the first year that I played, the minimum salaries they, you know, they bumped it all the way up to fifteen thousand dollars. You know. Um, and so a lot of the agents of the different players, you know, started, you know, they got into the players ears and said, Hey, you guys need to need to get together and start a union and, and negotiate and bargain with the league for your, your working conditions. Um, and so we did, and, and the players, we got together and we interviewed a number of different people, um, that wanted to, uh, be our union. And we ended up going with the NBA players association and became basically the sister organization of the NBA Players Association. And at the time, we felt like it would be beneficial to work with the NBA Players Association and use the benefit of their experience negotiating with the NBA. You know, we, they knew how the NBA, what, what their process was, um, you know, and at that time, because the NBA wholly owned the WNBA. The WNBA was a wholly owned subsidiary of the NBA. You know, we just felt like that knowledge and understanding of the finances of the NBA, the finances of, of those individual teams was something that, uh, that experience was something that we really felt like we could benefit from. And so um, the, we hired an executive director, Pam Wheeler, and she worked closely with uh, Billy Hunter and and the NBA Players Association and um, you know we did what we had to do with the uh, Federal Labor Relations Board and um, got certified as a as a union and then did the started doing the hard work of of knocking on the NBA the NBA's door and saying hey we need a little bit more than fifteen thousand dollars a year <laughs> yes you have like women on the sidelines but you're seeing these former uh, like Cheryl Miller, she was commentating a few games. You're seeing these women talk about the game of basketball and all of a sudden 
like on the men's side, they're like, hmm, maybe they could talk about the men's game too, which obviously they could before that. But like for for them, like I think a lot of times they didn't have um, a lot of men maybe didn't want to cover the W or whatever their reason may be. So a lot of these women beat writers and columnists were getting a chance like, oh, we need you to cover the monarchs or the shock or, you know, this this beat and you can grow into your own. So outside of, you know, the the financial incentives, one of the things that was really, um, really cool that we were able to get was because we were um, still owned by the wholly owned subsidiary of the NBA and had those connections to get the league to um, really dive into giving some programming to the players out of season um, that would help them, again, develop professional careers in basketball and professional sports outside of playing. And that has lasted, that has always been a part of every um, future collective bargaining agreement. And so now when you see so many of the uh, players retiring from the WNBA and now they're getting jobs in coaching in the NBA or they're getting jobs in the front office of NBA teams or G League teams, I'd like to think some of that is a result of some of the programming that started um, back with, with, I think, our, our second collective bargaining agreement, because that kind of, th- those kind of programming, they just flourished and they, they became more and more extensive with each collective, collective bargaining agreement. And so it's, it's pretty cool to see um, more women getting opportunities in, in ownership, in management, in coaching on the NBA side, as well as the WNBA side. Um, you just see more and more players now retired and and moving into um, these professional uh, positions. And that is what we th- were thinking about when we said, this has got to be our career. Just all these great, great players. It, it really shapes me to think that, I don't know, like these women are like so fundamentally sound when it comes to basketball because and I think that's obviously where it differs. Like they don't rely on dunks and maybe high flying. They are so fundamentally sound in, oh, you got to make that pass. Like everything about them was just so like super startup to me. And that's just for me because I was like, you know, 10, 11 at the time. So I'm watching, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to the, to the league. <laughs> so at that point, like I felt like every, all these women like gave us a reason to keep playing. All right, y'all, that's it for now. Thanks for tuning in to the Glass Houses of Oral History, and thank you for your support.